Yeah, I think we're on. I was going to put a voting icon on the group to be like score sheets now. On the uh, side. Yeah. I don't know if people will get it. So. Uh, <laughs> okay. All right, evening, everyone. Let's um, move along. Yeah. Parking is hard work, eh? Is it bad enough to park over the construction site if you know no one's going to be there? People don't live there, but it's still driveway. I think it's. I think it works. Okay. <laughs> I think it works. Nobody is going to begrudge you trying. It's just a matter of yeah. That is. Nobody's going to begrudge you trying. But it's not, not going to look right. bad. Right. No, but it's in like, if you're worth like. No, I'm just waiting for a few Do you think it's going to be on the door? It's going to be in the corner. 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 Okay, good. So let's um, recap quickly what we did last week. Um, we essentially wanted to discuss the, the foundational principle, and that is that when we make a brocha, we uh, look at the fact that Akash Baruch Hu, uh, gave Am Yisrael a unique privilege, and that is the ability to tap into the concept of Kedusha, of, the, of holiness, over and above righteousness. The entire world is essentially charged with the mitzvah of being righteous, um, Jew and non-Jew alike. So a, a tzaddik, where we use the word tzaddik as being somebody who's got more merits than 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 Averos, than demerits by being a good person, an ethical person. So that would be applicable to everybody. However, to be a kadosh, to be holy, there there's a, a whole different ball game. And number one, we. Uh, essentially tap into Kedusha through the world of mitzvah. And so if we're going to say that mitzvot give us an expression of, or represent an expression of Kedusha, and, um, and the more mitzvot a person has, in principle, therefore, the more Kedusha one would have, um, just like we saw by the evolution with a small e of Am Yisrael from Aram Avinu's time already, that he had the eighth mitzvah, one more than everybody else. And then uh, Yitzchak Avinu added um, his mitzvah and Yaakov Avinu got his mitzvah. And as the evolution of mitzvot began, the crystallizing of the Jewish soul and its level of sanctity uh, increased as well. And so therefore one might think that uh, the amount of mitzvot one is obligated in would really attest to the level of Kedusha of one's neshama. And, and therefore, since women have less obligations in the world of mitzvah than the men do, one would erroneously think that a woman's neshama is not on the same level of kedusha as a man um, because of the lack of the amount of mitzvah. Uh, to which we essentially established that uh, we needed to be, have a much more sophisticated understanding of, what, of how kedusha and mitzvah really work together. And what's important to understand is that Akash Baruch creates all of Kali Israel as a as a holy whole, um, all equal in terms of Kedusha at step, at step one level. And everybody's obligated in mitzvah, and no matter what mitzvah is, at, at, at level A. Then at level B, Yaakosh Baruch Hu that exempts certain people um, from those obligations of mitzvah. What's important about understanding this, uh, this development is that people shouldn't think that just because a coin has more mitzvot 
and a lady, and a lady has more than a Israel, etc. And men have more than women, and there are different groups in Klal Israel. We have different levels of mitzvah. I'm Israel. If you if you have a Jewish neshama, in principle, the neshama is 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 equal in the level of kedusha. That's what's expressed by the fact that Hashem made everybody kadosh. Everybody had the same. I uh, was all, of, all part of Klal Israel and had the same chiyuv obligation in mitzvah at stage one. Stage two, of course, Yankosh Baruch Hu, in his divine wisdom, decided to split people up with their roles and their levels of Kedusha and expression through mitzvah. But, um, but that doesn't mean that the Kedusha is any different. So that was the first point that we spoke out, uh, we spoke out last week. Um, and now we, we sort of uh, start to go through the Shulchan Aruch and try and pick up some of the mitzvot, which um, are different between men and women, and try and uh, uncover or explain why the minag or din in Klal Yisrael is, um, is, in, is, 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 uh, is like this. So let's, uh, let's have a look at the mitzvah of tzitzit and tefillin and see how we can uh, you know, gain a perspective on, uh, on why it is that women, we have a minag in Klal Yisrael or a din that women don't wear tzitzit or tefillin and, and men do. Now all this is against the backdrop that even if you have an exemption from a mitzvah, if a woman wanted to, um, you know, engage in that mitzvah, so even though there's a, for example, a mitzvah, say she has one grammar, a positive time bound mitzvah, which women are exempt from, but if you wanted to do it, in general, there's no problem for a woman to engage in that mitzvah. The only question would be the nature of the bracha, like we spoke out last week, you know, as far as you have the men, I cannot do and uh, not to make up, Saudi ladies don't make a bracha on a voluntary mitzvah, and Ashkenazi lazy ladies do. But um, the principle is that if you want to engage in a positive time-bound mitzvah, you know, it's, it's, it's recommended as much as possible. So now we sit with two mitzvot, which in, uh, in theory are mitzvot asayshaz man grama. You know, the mitzvah of tefillin is clearly a mitzvah asayshaz man grama. Uh, on one of two levels. When we say mitzvah sashas ban grammar, we, uh, we really mean that there's a, a time frame where there's a, there's a time frame in which one has to fulfill that particular mitzvah. Um, it's a zman mugbal, as we say in Hebrew, that there's a certain time frame that's associated with that particular mitzvah. It's got to stop, start and stop somewhere. If the, if the mitzvah is such that it's ad infinitum until you fulfill it, you know, and obligations upon you, you know, without any break in time, then that would be non-time bound. You know, time bound would be that there's a certain time to fulfill something and at a time at which it stops. Now, with regard to the mitzvah of tefillin, there are two opinions with regard to the mitzvah of tefillin. One is that nighttime is not as man tefillin. You can't put on tefillin at night. If you hold of that opinion, then it's clearly as man grammar because it stops at night. So you've got a mitzvah to put on tefillin, but it only lasts for the daytime. So you can, you know, if that's your opinion, then it's a mitzvah say as man grammar based on the fact that nighttime uh, is is uh, is out of bounds for the mitzvah of tefillin. However, there are some rishonim who hold that nighttime is not disqualified from the mitzvah of tefillin, and in theory you can put on the mitzvah, you can put on tefillin at night. But um, what is out of bounds is Shabbos and Yontif. So again, you've just expanded the level of time of the, of the time frame in which tefillin can be put on. You can do it twenty four seven for you know all six you know six days of the week um, and most of the year. But come Shabbos and Yontif, you can't do it. Therefore, tefillin is a, a time bound mitzvah. Okay, so nevertheless, so even though tefillin is a time bound mitzvah, whatever your opinion on the the zman is with regard to tefillin. Uh, the question would be now, number one, why is it that women don't put on fill-in? Um, and if they want to put on fill-in and volunteer, uh, what's the story with, with, with regard to that? Now, what's interesting when we get into the mitzvah of fill-in, we, um, we, we bump into a, a well-known uh, Gomorrah, where the Gomorrah tells us that Shaul Melech's daughter put on fill-in. She put on fill-in. Um, and the question was, did Chazal, did the Rabbonim of the time, did they protest against her putting on tefillin, yes or no? So as far as the Babli is concerned, our Gomorrah, they didn't protest against her putting on tefillin. 
The question is now, does Michal Bat Shaul set a precedent? Now, there were potentially there were holy women throughout the ages who possibly put on tefillin. We don't know of too many, but we hear through the grapevine, so to speak, that people, you know, heard that certain, you know, daughters or, or wives put on put on tefillin. Now, many years ago, when um, I looked into this, there was this um, legend that Rashi's daughters put on tefillin. Anyway, to be honest with you, I searched for it and I couldn't really find it anywhere, which means that I don't know what to tell you other than that if you ask me from the written sources that, that I see, I don't see any proof to that. You know, um, the wife of the Orachaim Makadosh, it was uh, also rumored that she put on tefillin. And again, it's possible there, at least it's written in the Swarim that, that we have access to that she put on tefillin. Um, but the daughters of Rashi, I think, is more legend than uh, than it is MS. But I don't know. It could be that you could find it and you could look for it to see uh, what happened there. But what this uh, you know this challenges us to say, well, maybe a certain level of righteousness, uh, saintliness within a woman may give her an exception to the rule with regard to tefillin, and that's why people allowed it or didn't object to it. But what we see from the from the Svarim Alokalamaisa, in other words, practical halokha, we see that in the Shukhan Aruch, there's not just a recommendation for women to stay to not do the trillion. There, there possibly is an issue, there possibly is a, possibly is a prohibition associated with women uh, putting on, on trillion. Now, this has often come up in uh, you know in all sorts of scenarios as being a an issue as to how to understand, especially if a woman is really motivated to put on tefillin. Somebody uh, learns about the tefillin and they hear about the spiritual connection that you can forge with the Kosh as a result of putting on tefillin. And uh, a person really yearns for that same kind of connection. And uh, and now the challenge is, you know, what perspective do we have? Why is it um, a minak? At the very least, it's a minak to stay away for women, stay away from tefillin, and it's it, um, um, and and, if, and at the very worst, let's say, at the most extreme, it's an actual, it's an actual issue of sorts. Now, uh, I just express my own, you know, words of introduction, preface to this, to the subject, and that is what I, what I, what I feel. Uh, I could be wrong, but what I feel is one of the major areas of tension that exists within the world of a woman looking to. Uh, you know, be involved in the world of mitzvah of this kind of example where the halacha uh, sets up a distinction between men and women, the, the frustration happens on a number of levels. And uh, when you have discussions in all sorts of scenarios that allow this, you start to pick up nuances of this, of this issue. And um, th this, is what, this, is what I, this is what I feel. I feel that one of the major issues really that's coming to the fore in many of the areas of controversy within uh, the world of women and, and, and mitzvah is that people feel and look to the Gemorras and the Shulchan Aruch, the Poskim, they look to try and see what do the Poskim say about tzitzit, about tefillin, you know, about all the minhagim in shul, etc. And you're looking at each, at each one individually, which is, which is fair enough. But I think what I want to preface my remarks by saying is that I think that there's a real issue here that's being missed. And that is as follows. It goes down to the very nature of how Akash Baruch created man and woman. Now, there's a very interesting um, com, uh, you know, concept that you, you, you may have been introduced to. And that is there's, a, there's an interesting idea that the way Akash Baruch magnified his presence in the world was through the creation of nature. And then from nature, Hashem worked his way through the evolution of creation by getting to more and more sophisticated entities. So you, you went, for lack of a better term, you went from mineral to vegetable to animal to, to human. Um, and each level of sophistication, there was a an elevated level of spirituality, if you can call it that, that's attached to everybody. The Gemara has a description where it says that what was ever what was created last 
was the, the pinnacle of creation. What's created first is almost like as mundane as you can get. So on the one hand, we are, we are asked to look at ourselves as the crowning glory of creation. Human beings were created last. And therefore, you know, we are the purpose of all creation. I should put everything else in place. So it's all ready for us when we, when we arrive. You know, at the same time, there's a Musar Vort, which uh, tries to tell us that, you know, don't get too over the top with this, you know, because, you know, the mosquito preceded you. So there's a kind of a, a yin and yang playing with the idea of what, what was created first. But one of the most insightful comments that I, I saw a while back is that, there's actually reference to Hashem's um, influence on the world, you know, increasing influence in the world, um, attested to in the Kaddish that we all that we all say and answer to. Uh, it's a fascinating idea, but uh, I just actually um, I was looking for it uh, before I got here, um, and this basically is a it's a Peirush on a Sidur. Um, which I took it from, Sidur Ashkenaz. And uh, essentially what the Sidur basically says is as follows. The Sidur tells us that there are 10 stages or ten of creation, and each of those 10 stages are represented in the words of the Kaddish. So how do you, how do you work this out? So you'll find a pasuk in Tanakh, which uh, has the word that's praising a Baruch So we've got Yid Gadel, Yid Kadesh, that's two, right? Then we go, Yid Barach, Yid Tabach, Yid Par, Yid Romam, Yid Nasei, Yid Adar, Yid There's eight. So you've got eight praises of a Baruch Add to the two that we already had, you've got 10. What are all these praises doing there? They're highlighting this, um, this elevated process of Hashem's presence, you know, unfolding in the world of, of creation. It's a beautiful idea. And, uh, and essentially, this is, what, this is how we understand it. So let's for, look for a pasuk that talks of um, the word Yit Kadal or Yit Kadash. And so we have... Uh, in in Breshit, we have, for example, Akush Baruch said, "Let there be light." That was the first creation. So Akush Baruch said, "Let there be light." And the or was called Gadol. How do we know this to be true? Because the pasuk in Yeshaya says, "Ha'am ha'ochim b'choshech ra'u or Gadol." Okay, so the word Gadol is related to light, and therefore the fichach tiknu connected yit Gadol or yit Gadol. Therefore, parallel to that uh, act of creation expressed through the word gadol, i.e. light, you know, so the, the, the parallel is the or gadol that Akosh Baruch put into the universe, which is then expressed by Yechezkel in the words v'hit gadilti, v'hit kadishti. So you start to see already that this is how this whole method of approach to analyze the, the kadish will, will unfold. So it's a phenomenal thing that Yid Gadol or Gadol or, you know, creation number one, you know, creation number two, Yirakia Betocha Mayim, you know, and the, the water, Kitshu Shemor Shalakosh Baruchu Tchila, because Akosh Baruchu said to the water, you know, split, etc. So the word Kadosh, Kedusha of the Mayim, Mayim Kedoshim, and the word Yid Kadash. So whenever you say the word Yid Gadol, you think of, the first act of creation of, of light and dark. When you think of the word Yit Kadash, you think of water. And it goes on like this the whole way through. It's quite fascinating. You know, number three, Yikavu Amayim, Akosh Baruch wanted to make a dry land, etc. Anyway, and it goes, it goes on to talk about Yit Barach. And so each phrase of the Kaddish represents a level of creation. Where are you reading this from? I took it from a Siddur. Yeah, yeah, sure. I'll send it to the senator. Um, and it goes on Yishtabach, Yitpar, each one of these, each one of these aspects. And this is what the I don't know who the Baal of the I don't know who the one who wrote the Siddur was. You know, um, it's abbreviated 
even in the in the Mekorot, so it says, you know, um, Sidur Ashkenaz. I don't know, you know, uh, you know. I, I have to I have to look it up exactly who actually wrote it. Um, but when I was doing my, you know, I was doing that Yiskor book thing, and I was looking to explain the Kaddish, and this is one of the, you know, and I and I never, I got to this inside too late, <laughs> so I couldn't put it in the, I couldn't put it in, but I really wanted to. Um, anyway, it was a fantastic uh, story, but. Let me just quickly, so I don't take too much time on the Kaddish, but essentially, let me just share with you something which is really majestic. And that is as follows. So the second to last creation, paralleling the word, V'it Aleh, because Baruch Hu, um, you know, is uplifted, um, you know, in, in the so-called praise that we give him, um, you know, what, what's it all about? So, so yeah, we talk about um, mankind, the human being being created um, and elevated to the level where where we are one step lower than the angels. So according to one opinion, let's call it the rationalists hold that mankind or human beings are one less level than the angels, right? According to the Kabbalists, because angels don't have free choice, we actually one a level higher. But interesting, this whole Anyway, this is, this is where, so the second to last praise is about man, right? Mm -hmm. Now, the point that I'm looking to make here is as follows. The Yitalal, and of course Baruch Hu is, um, is lauded, you know? Um, what does that refer to? What Pasuk do we know? And what creation does the word Yitalal uh, represent? Says the Sidur, Akosh Baruch Hu said to man, Lord Tova Yotanam Levado, Selo Ezer Kenegdo, I'm going to make a, a woman as a, as a partner opposite him. And in Mishlei we say, Ishayirat Hashem, he titalal. The word titalal represents womanhood. And as a result of this principle, now you see all the dots join, right? What I'm trying to get to is, is that without being apologetic or just being uh, facetious about it, but in the femininity of uh, the, the concept of spirituality, Akush Baruch himself, Hashem himself is made up of, of, if we can say this in our terminology, Hashem is comprised of an absolute unity of what we call in the Kabbalistic term Zuchra, which is Zachar, and Nukva in Aramaic is Nekeva. And they, they are two energies, you know, yin and yang, you know, they are two energies, you know, of, of active and passive, of giving and receiving. These are the so-called energies that make up what we understand um, as a facet of Akosh Baruch Hu's unity. But the, the interesting element is as follows, that this act of giving and receiving, of being active and nurturing, all that is really a refracted through a physical prism and it splits into male and female. So we represent Akosh Baruch Hu's in the world we, rep we represent Akosh Baruch in the world. The godliness is refracted through a physical prism and it comes out in all of creation and specifically for our, uh, you know, from our vantage point, it's, it's about man and woman. But the point here is, is that the neshama, the kedusha of the neshama of a woman, if you create it last and the theory that we are drawing from is saying that there's, there's, there's actually a, a, a more serious element of kedusha in what was created last, then that, that fuels the idea that you've probably heard about where people often say that a woman in, in, innately has more Kedusha than a man. So never mind being equal as far as mitzvah is concerned and then having the exemption, but quite, quite simply put, uh, if, we, if, we, you know, if we look at things from a, a very objective point of view, the, dr the drive in the man and the male component of the world is more prone to trip up with sin than the nurturing quality of a, of a woman. And so if mitzvah is connected to the, the amount of yetzahora that exists in a personality, um, as opposed to uh, man, as opposed to woman, then that is one way of looking at where these different mitzvot are all about. They are responding to the level of sanctity that's naturally imbibed within a certain neshama which has a proclivity towards spirituality, you know, more than, more than others do. And so it's part and parcel of this interesting 
um, equation, which we need both. The world, Akosh Baruch Hu tells us that, that we are to see Akosh Baruch Hu himself as, as being comprised, if we can use these words describing Hashem, you know, of being, of, 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 you know, being, being, having this absolute unity of, of the yin and yang of the, you know, the, of the, of the, of the multiple positions of Neshama, of spirituality that's, that's there. So this, this is one perspective that we need to work with. And that is that there's already a difference in the nature of our Neshamas from the word go. Right there. And, and, it, and it plays itself out in very controversial points of view. I'm just going to throw one out here, just to probably the most controversial thing I'll tell you. But when I have time, I'll, I'll go back to it to, to explain it out properly. But I don't know if you ever contemplated such a, such a, a point. And that is, is it worse for man or woman to commit adultery? Or is it the same? Yeah, that's a very, very big question. Now, what, what, I, what I will show you is that when you say one is worse than the other, so at first glance, people will get upset. If I say it's worse for a woman, it means you're judging the woman too harshly or more harshly, you know, as opposed to a man. But it's actually the other way around. You have to realize that the more holy something is, the more it needs to be protected. And the more it's violated, right, the issue is worse. Well, let, let's look at it from the damage point of view. In the world of spirituality, you know, if something is, the more holy something is, the more, when it's violated, the more spiritual damage exists in the equation than, than um, when something less holy is, is, is vandalized. So, you know, Labdil, if, if uh, you know, if the Arabs rioted in Yerushalayim and they broke into a shul and they vandalized the shul, so the, the level of vandalism is up here. You know, if they went into the Beit HaMikdash and on the Temple Mount and they violated something, then the level of vandalism in the minds of the people, we're not, we're not just saying psychologically, we're saying they violated a really holy place. So the, the woman's neshama or the expression of femininity of a Baruch Hu, which is refracted into women, that, that is the most kadosh entity that a Baruch Hu put into creation and therefore needs the most protection against violation. That, that's what I'm trying to, to, to develop here, this theme. Okay, so in, in a nutshell, I don't, I don't want to spend the whole share on this, but just in a nutshell, a man is a giver. A woman is a receiver in, in many areas. I'm not prototyping here, but it's in, in, in intimacy, in sexuality, in creating a child. This is how, you know, it, it, it's a clear illustration of this. But here's the interesting point. A man can have many wives. You know, you can give to as many people as you want. But the receptacle, which nurtures what, which turns what was given into something for the next generation, can only have one at a time, right? You can only have one. And so th this is always an interesting point. How come, you know, you can have, you know, a man can have as, as, as many wives as he likes, and so to speak, and a woman can only have one husband. Now, here's something, you know, to my mind, insightful, and that is that a woman, a woman will nurture that investment that a husband or man makes in her in order to produce a child. But at the same time as you're a receiver, by nurturing and, 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 and producing, you do both. You receive, and by receiving, you're giving. And so therefore, when a woman is violated, you, when a man is violated, you violated a receiving and a giving energy. When a woman is violated, you violate both a giving, a receiving and a giving energy. You know what I'm saying? These are all, you know, insightful comments with regard to how Akash Baruch creates the world and the nature of the energy, what is more spiritual naturally. Now, of course, you can have a tzaddik of a guy and you can have a, you know, you can have a, a, a horrible lady, right? And so, therefore, you can say, well, you know, and, it's, and vice versa, you can have a horrible guy and you can have a tzaddik of a lady. We're not talking about 
the general behavior of each particular person we, we talk about. You know, we're talking about spiritual begadol, you know, in general, how did Akash Baruch create the world? How did Hashem refract His presence through the physical prism called the universe to provide us with everything that we have in nature? And our interest is to know the difference between men and women, why the roles are different, why our physicality is different. And it's all because of the spirituality is different. It we, men and women, represent a certain spiritual component of Akash Baruch himself. And, and this equation of giving and receiving and then giving in return is a major fundamental principle of Hashem created the world. Now, having said all this, what I want to extract or use this to explain is why certain values are more present with men in some cases and with women in other cases. So if I decide to you, look, there's a concept you know, called tzniyut, modesty. So who, modesty applies equally to men and to women. When I say equally, as a principle, we are both enjoined to be tzanua. But when you say the word, are you, tzni, are, are you, are you acting bitzniyut? You know, are you acting modestly? What's the first thing you think of? You don't think you're asking whether the guy wore shorts to davening or not, right? You don't think of that. Right? You think of a woman being covered or uncovered, or you think of people behaving in a certain way. Why is it that the value of tzniyut is so much more heightened with a, with, with, with a woman than it is with a man? The, the way we built, right? I can walk around with, uh, you know, without a shirt and it will be, you know, interesting, but not nearly as interesting as if a woman did it, right? How come? Because there's an element of there's an element of camouflage that is insistent by the world of aloha more on a woman than is on a man. And we're not just talking about clothes covering us up. We're talking about everything. Tzniyut means everything. We mistakenly often just let it talk to us about clothing, but it's about everything. It's about everything. It's about how you behave, how you talk, how you act, how, what, 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 you know, what activities you engage in. Everything is under this rubric of, of Tzniyut. And it's one of the major struggles and challenges that Akash Baruch Hu, you know, put in front of us. And that is, Hashem created a dichotomy. Hashem created a force that is a giving, active, dominant force of the male, where the male's got to get out there and his job is to, if you're not, if you're not Jewish for sure, your job is to dominate nature, you know, and to, and to, and to, and to, and to invest in it so that people live on a much higher madrega. You help more people, you do more people, you create a more you know, majestic approach to the world. You can get from A to B faster. You, know, you, you try and develop the world as much as you can to allow mankind um, you know, to, uh, to flourish. So, so the male energy, even if it's a female who's doing it, you understand? In male and female, we both have male and female energy. You know, so sometimes... I, as a human being, as a man, I can have a feminine side to me, which is, you know, that empathic side. And I can have a male side, which is the strong, domineering, active side. And a woman can have the same. We are both, men and women, fueled by this dichotomy that we have within us, Zuchra and Nukva. And we just have one more dominant than the other. So what happens is, is that Akosh Baruch creates man, and it says, you know, Literally, take nature, it's yours. I put it here for you. Make it work. You know, combat disease. Make, you know, solve economic problems. Make the world a more beautiful place to live in. Make it more efficient. You know, find running water. Make it, make electricity. Just, just do it. Make this place really work. Now, that energy, that, 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 that generally a male, the male energy, whether it's in a male or a female, where they exercise that, there, you know, the biggest challenge is, is that if you succeed, if ambition succeeds, you know, its biggest, its biggest problem is it draws arrogance, you know, to itself. So the more successful a human being, really, you should be the one who's saying thank you to Hashem more than anybody else. But the successful human being has a problem, you know, that he's, the Yetzirah always throws his, his, his you know, his... Uh, his success in his in his face and turns him into an arrogant human being. So 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 what do you do? How do you find humility? 
the the biggest equation that the biggest challenge in in all of mankind is to balance to, is to balance ambition with humility achievement with modesty that, that's that's where it is now when you basically say that akush baruch created male energy in males and females but in males it dominates and male and female energy in in females but the female energy dominates so the area of female energy and femininity is 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 heart and sense of kedusha. It's 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 more spiritual and it's less it's less vulnerable and less pulled towards material success. But on the other hand, it has to be protected more. It's it's got to be covered. It's got to be you know it's got to be shielded, because that humility shield of humility saves ambition from turning the successful person into thinking they're a demigod themselves. So that's what you need. You need like a, you know, you need an Azer Connector. You need these energies to come together in a, you know, in the most beautiful, you know, educational and institution that we have, which is marriage. When it works, you know, this is exactly what happens, you know. And we we joke about it, but it's true, you know, like you know, the the, the wife keeps you in check, which is right. Because there's that energy just to do and think and do and become great, and there's and, and it's not that it can't work the other way around, but in principle, that's the idea. So going back to my uh, original point here, and that is why, why is this concept so important? It's because so many of the areas of difference, differentiation, in my humble opinion, between men and women in mitzvot stem from this issue. It's not an issue whether it's halachically mutar or asur, you know, to wear tefillin. We'll get to that too. We'll get to that too. What is the actual technical aloha? I'm trying to uncover the philosophical issue behind it. And that is when there's a, a yes or a no answer as to whether you can or can't, or the custom is not to. You must know it's not a din in Twilin per se. It's a din in Sniut. It's a question whether your Sniut is being affected. More than a technical detail in the, in the laws of Twilin. So in other words, just to throw it out there, we'll come and we'll talk to it later. But when we talk to this concept of why is it that women in shul don't get aliyot? You know, is it really a problem to call a woman up to read the Torah? You know, after all, the Gemara says that, at, at, you know, for the generations of the Talmud, it was permissible. And it was done. But then something changes. Something changes in the society. And what changes is, uh, that that there's a kind of a, a downgrading on of the level of of tzniyut, men vis-a-vis -vis women and women vis-a-vis -vis men. And now the question is, well, what do you do when there's a conflict between a potentially permissible value and a higher value of tzniyut? What do you do? And so, you know, my my, uh, my the result of this whole discussion is to show you that the first thing I'm going to encourage us to look at is whenever there's a potential opportunity for a woman to do a mitzvah. A mitzvah says as my grandma. Yes, for, for whatever reason, which we're going to get it, we'll get into a woman's exempt. But let's say she wants to. If the halacha or the minag is that a woman does not put on tzitzit or does not put on tefillin, the first thing you have to look at is is to, is whether this is a, a a compromise, a conflict between a mitzvah which is only voluntary versus a value of tzniyut. Which in your case, which in woman's case, needs to be highlighted and takes precedence over the technical din that's being that's being under dis that's under, under discussion. Is it subjective or objective in terms of like if you'll feel arrogant or just as a whole? In general, we're gonna say it's objective. You know, it could be that certain things are subjective, and depending on the minag and the you know the question that we're raising and discussing. Um, it might be subjective, subjective possibly within not just individuals, but subjective to communities, right? Certain communities have a minag that this is how people act, you know, and in that community, there's no issue. Then it's easier to say that snoot is not being violated. You understand what I'm saying? Now, so this is my approach, um, you know, to, you know, to, to understanding the nature of this particular subject of tefillin. Because if we have a look as follows, 
Yes, we know that uh, the Gemara in 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 Eruvin the Gemara tells us that uh, Michal put on tefillin, and the Chachamim didn't uh, protest. Um, and now the question is: So how come it didn't set a precedent? You know what what happened over there? You know what what happened with the, with the issue of of tefillin? Now, if you look at the various different approaches to this issue, you'll find some that are technical in nature and others which I think can be seen through the lens that I've uh, constructed for you, you know, as to why it's a problem. So let's say, let's say for example, like this. Let's say we pick up a comment from the Targum Yonatan Ben Uziel. The Targum Yonatan tells us that if a woman were to wear tzitzit or tefillin, they would be in violation of wearing men's clothing. Men's clothing. Somehow the Targum Yonatan feels that the Isur, which is not explicitly um, defining Tvilin or Tzitzit, it's just in the Torah, it just tells you Lotel Bash that a woman shouldn't wear, you know, Simat Geber Alisha, you know? So the, a, a man or a woman shouldn't wear the opposite, no cross dressing. That's an Isur in the Torah. Now, the simple understanding of it is, is that cross dressing was engaged in, you know, for you know, sexual licentiousness, you know, it's just uh, people need, uh, inter, you know, you know, entertainment in the world of intimacy and the Aitahora is the strongest there. And therefore people wore each other's clothes, right? But, but there's an issue to do that. Now, the question is that Targum came along and gave us this Chidush of his that said that, you know, Tzitzin and Tfilin are a man's clothing. Now, we could ask ourselves and say, well, when did it become only man's clothing? Like, how did that happen? So it, it had to go through a process where a, a precedent was set, that this was the custom or this was the din. The tzibur followed it. And as a result of the minag setting itself up in Klal Yisrael, it was known that this is what is done. Almost like, you know, an unwritten rule, if you will. And by the time, you know, a certain amount of time had gone by, and it become a fixed feature within the custom of Klal Yisrael. And now you were looking to try and work out, so now how do we understand it from here? Well, possibly that's what the Targum maybe meant. He could say that from a certain point in time when the Minak became clear, you know, that women don't put on tefillin, then now if you do, because it's been man's, man's garment for who knows how long, let's say the beginning of, from Sinai onwards, because that's true, so it becomes now man's clothing. And if you put it on now, you you know it's 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 in conflict with the world of Sniyut that you that you're working with. Or you could say from the very beginning of time, you know, Tambin Uziel would have said that, of course, if you understand this this whole spiritual equation that we're talking about so so much, if we understand this from the very beginning, you didn't even have to wait for time. Maybe Targum Yonatan is saying from the very beginning it was defined as men's clothing, men would wear it and women don't. But, but if that's so, then why didn't the Gemara, why didn't the Rabbonim protest with Michal? Now, maybe there's something with Michal. She's the king's daughter, maybe. Or maybe that certain people on a certain spiritual madrega, exceptional woman, maybe were given the opportunity. This is a, these are all discussion points within the whole, you know, within the whole approach. My, from my point of view is that there's a subliminal message over here that if Am Israel were guarded by the greatest of the great spiritual leaders and it set up, it set itself up in a way that the Minat became that even though there might be an exception to the rule with certain great people who decided to put on Tvilin, but the overwhelmingly vast majority the Minak set itself up to the point where eventually it became set in stone that people don't do it. Women don't do it. It's an, now, you could ask and say, well, why is it such a compromise to the world of Tzniyot? So one way of looking at it is as follows. There's a very technical approach that uh, the Balea Tosfot uh, work with. Um, and that you probably, you may have heard this because this is normally the common, um, the common explanation. And at first glance, it really is very technical. But it basically tells us that Tfilin have such a high level of Kedusha that they can only be worn by somebody, man or woman, 
who can control their bodies properly. Any kind of passing of wind, menstrual cycle, any kind of, you know, any kind of plumbing issue that any of us have in our bodies, if we can't control it and we're wearing trillion, which is Kadosh, you know, we are going to violate the Kadosh of the trillion by wearing it if we can't control our bodies. If we can't control our minds, if our minds start to wander, you know, uh, out of the, the, the Dalit Amot of spirituality, we violate the Kadosh of Tvilin. So a person, a person, you know, cannot think about anything else when they're wearing Tvilin. It violates the Kadosh of Tvilin. Now, if you take both these two elements, you know, you've got to be totally in control of your body and you've got to be totally in control of your mind. Then there's three and a half people going to be putting on Tvilin. You know, none of us are going to be worthy to put on Twitter. In fact, it's quite possible to explain. There, there, there has been a, um, there's been, there's evidence in Jewish history, going back to the times of the Rishonim and the Goenim, that there were certain communities where they did not, the men did not wear Twitter. They, they ended up put away. And the explanation behind it is, is that whoever was there in the beginning felt that they weren't worthy to put on Twitter. So that, I'm talking about men. Now this 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 became a problem. Right? So what did Chazal do? As the let's call it as the spiritual level of, of, of man, you know, as it as it degraded throughout the generations, what did Chazal do with this aloch of Twitter? So they came along and they said like this: they said, a guy has to wear tefillin all time the whole day. You're supposed to wear tefillin. That's the that's the din. The actual din of wearing tefillin is the whole day. You know? I don't know how you do that. I just don't know. Forget even just not thinking about the tefillin. But just, that, you know, it's like wearing a mask. You know, you can't, you can hardly move. Every single, every single movement of your physical body is restrained by a pair of tefillin. Do you know what I mean? You, you would not be able to get up to mischief with a pair of tefillin on. I mean, you could be, you could try, and I'm sure people would succeed. But can you see what that does? Can you see what wearing tefillin does to you? It, you know, would, would, would I be out of line if I said it's almost like a, a shaitel? You know what I mean? It's like, it, 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 it's on you and it like restricts your movements. Subliminally, you know, subconsciously, you, if, you, if, if you either your, your mind's going to be on it all the time and if, if, you start to, if you start to do something, you're going to earn a panosa, you have to take off the tefillin. So a person governed and then learned in the old days Okay, now you have to go to the office, whatever you had to do. Okay, you started chopping wood, drawing water, whatever you did. You did business in the shuk. You couldn't do it with twilling on. You had to take your twilling off. But in principle, you should wear twilling the whole time when you're not working. And that's what great people used to do. We, we've lost that level completely. And we got to a point where Hazal said, look, really it's true. The mitzvah of twilling is that you wear it the whole time that you're not working or engaged in anything else. But we can't, we can't, uh, we're not there. We just are not at that madriga. And therefore, this is what we say. I'm talking about to men. Because there's a mitzvah for a man to put on chilin every single day, we don't want to be, we cannot allow a situation like those communities where they were vital the mitzvah of chilin and they neutralized the whole mitzvah of chilin. No. So what we did was we said, only wear chilin on a minimalist level. You have to put on chilin. We know you've got a problem with keeping your mind straight and your body right. We know you've got a problem. But because there's a mitzvah on you to wear the tefillin, we have to make a compromise and say, we'll take a risk. We'll take a risk that you're going to, you know, you'll daven with tefillin first in the morning when you've got no major distractions, you know, and hopefully you'll make it through shachris without thinking about the soccer. You know, you'll make it through shachris with a pair of tefillin on, with your mind completely focused on all matters spiritual through the davening or learning. And then the minute davening is over, take off that feeling. Because there's no way you can continue to, to, to operate with the Lord. But the only reason that we compromise on that, on that uh, conflict of a person being on a low spiritual level and not being able to be focused, and the same, you don't want the mitzvah of tilling to disappear, the reason that we compromise on it is because there's a mitzvah of tilling, because there's a chiyuv on somebody to put on tilling. Now I ask you, if there's no chiyuv on you to put on tilling, would you take the risk? Why would you take the risk? Why would you put yourself in a position to put something on which most people, 
men and women are not able to have control over and, it, and, and just end up violating the Kedusha feeling on a daily basis. If you don't have a chiyuv to do it, why would you put yourself in that risk? Why would you take it on? And if you do take it on, if you do take it on, is it not a certain amount of arrogance there? You understand the point? And this is this is one of the approaches to understand why you'll find in halachas for him that even a woman who wants to is, is recommended not to. And all these words are thrown out. You know, cleanliness, you know, uh, number two, this issue of hirur, avera. I mean, you know, you can't keep your mind off, uh, of, of, of things that are antithetical to tefillin, but more, it's that what they call yuara. Yuara is an Aramaic word which means showing off. If you don't have a chiyuv to do something, and there's a risk in doing that, that, that action, a spiritual risk, and you do it, you are compromising the value of tzniyut, and we call that arrogance. You are. I've heard the same thing for women saying no. I think it's different. I think it's a lot different. I think that the, the strong uh, representation of tzitzit and tfilin, or talis tfilin, is that it's a malbush. You know, a person can do, can have a mincha mariv uh, at home, in, you know, in the privacy of your own home, even if you came into the Ezrat Nashim of the, of the shul. You know, okay, maybe somebody might think, you know, wow, this is Sadekis of sorts, you know, which woman's coming from mariv, you know what I mean? You know, either that or poor husband, you know, you can think of one or two things, what's going on? But, but, but in principle, no, there could be unbelievably spiritual women who are coming to Daven and they should be able to Daven. I don't think that is nearly as much of a, a URA as, as, as a Malbush, which is either from the word go or over time become defined as, you know, as, as a man's garment on the one hand. On the other hand, this other Svara that we're talking about, same thing with the Talis, with Tzitzit. Tzitzit is not an obligatory mitzvah in the same way that you normally think of um, a mitzvah in. In other words, you only have a chiyuv to uh, put on tzitzit if you own and go out of your way to buy a four-cornered garment. If you don't go, if you don't have one, then you have to go out and buy one. Now, there's a machloket in the Gemara about this with regard to, to a guy in a mitzvah of tzitzit. Should you go out and buy one? We bask in that you don't have to. You know, but because it's such an easy mitzvah to fulfill, why wouldn't you do it? Go and put yourself, put yourself in the firing line of tzitzit by buying a four-cornered garment and wear it. And as a result of you wanting to wear it, it'll be obligatory in the mitzvah of tzitzit. You know, so, th so that's what we do. But, but now that the mitzvah is not obligatory upon you, and you now put yourself in the position to do something which was not obligated upon you, where there's a malbush element to it, this is what you find in some of the Swarim when they talk about, you know, Yuhara, where, you, where you're putting yourself in, in the spotlight. And, and hmm? could be hidden. Yeah, could be hidden, and that's why it's easier than Twilin. And so when a, when a woman who's genuine about the spirituality of Tzitzit comes and says, I really want to wear Tzitzit, you know, she can wear Tzitzit. If you're really genuine about it, wear it. But wear it in such a way that you're not calling attention to yourself. Because the minute you start putting yourself in the spotlight, you compromise the value that represents your spirituality at best. And that is Tzniyot. Tzniyot becomes a problem. So, so this, is, this is, you know, an understanding that, that we have from the, you know, from reading out the halacha, which at first glance comes about pretty starkly represented in the, in the Shukhan Aruch, in the, but, but I think this is what's really behind everything. That the, the reason to say no about somebody volunteering for a mitzvah that they aren't obligated in is because there may be a conflict between that pious act which is voluntary and the you know and calling your attention to yourself while you're doing it. At the same time, that's not the only perspective, but it's one of them. It could be that if Moshe Rabbeinu came down and sort of set the tone and a kind of a message went out to everybody that even though it's possible in theory for a woman to volunteer this kind of mitzvah, you know, this is not the minute of Klal Yisrael. 
And therefore, throughout all the generations of, of orthodoxy, you know, you never ever see that the precedent that was set even by holy women was ever taken on and recommended by, uh, by communities. And so today, even if you look at, you know, chuvas that are written by the modern day poskim, you know, Rav Moshe Fasi makes this distinction that, that we were talking about now between tzitzit and tefillin. You know, if a woman really is, feels that the tzitzit gives her an opportunity to connect, um, then, um, then, okay, do it in such a way that it doesn't draw attention to yourself. You know, but, but and that, that would be okay. But tefillin has, an, has a sting in the tail. Tefillin's got like a, a real issue over here. So this is one of the, the one of the areas of you know this is these are some of the perspectives that that we we're going to hopefully speak a little bit more about and apply them you know to the world of of mitzvot where exemptions are there but I think in the in the essence in the in the world of tefillin there's uh, there's something very interesting I'll just I'll end off with a question with regard to tefillin which I came about a number of years ago I came across and um, I know we've run out of time but I'll, so next week I'll, I'll try and um, you know, talk to this question. You know, the rule of positive time-bound mitzvahs that women are exempt from, but can always volunteer to do, you know, the vast majority of them. Sometimes you'll find in the world of halakha that there are positive time-bound mitzvot, mitzvah which, um, which, which, uh, which women, in theory, are obligated in. And the examples are, the ones that will, you know, jump at us straight away are Hanukkah, the Megillah, and Arba Kosot on Pesach. Right? Shabbos candles. Interesting that, you know, that the minute we talk about Shabbos, we, we need to see Shabbos as a combination of Asay and Lot Asays. Uh, and Shabbos generates both of them. So if you're obligated in one part of Shabbos, you're obligated in another part of Shabbos. So that's why candles are part of Shabbos. But, this, but, this, but the famous phrase that you may be aware of is that why is a woman obligated? Why are these exceptions to the rule? So there's a concept that the Gemara tells us about they were, that the miracle applied to them. You understand? The miracle applied to you. So you were all part of it. We were all part of it. We, so therefore, we have an obligation of of Pisumenisa of publicizing a miracle. Okay? Now you you drink the Arba Kosot of, of, of wine on Pesach because you know you came out of Pesach. Not just that you make it out and were beneficiaries of the miracle, you motivated the miracle, right? So so that same thing with Purim. Same thing, you know, Haman didn't differentiate. And therefore all these dinim that are commemorating or publicizing a miracle, even though they're time bound, a woman be obligated in them. Okay, so he has the question. Okay, I'm going to leave you with a question. The mitzvah of tefillin, how is it communicated to us? What does Hashem tell us? Hashem tells us, why are you putting on tefillin? To remember? Yeah, why? To remember what? Yitziat Mitzrayim. So you put on tefillin to remember Yitziat Mitzrayim. Can you see my question? If women are obligated to commemorate Yitziat Mitzrayim just as men are, and tefillin is an act of commemoration of Yitziat Mitzrayim. So why aren't women, forget not exempt, why aren't they obligated in the mitzvah of tefillin? You with me? Okay, so we'll leave it over here. And uh, <laughs> gotta, gotta get you back. You know, so um, please God will pick up on this uh, uh, next week. Um, yeah, uh, was it? Two weeks, uh, Shavuot, yeah, excellent. I, I just I just always have to uh, say over this comment, which also I was just excited to see. But um, when I was discussing this issue once with about women who want to put on tefillin, you know what? You know, is there some sort of parallel? So I saw in the writings of Arya Kaplan. I, I think it's his original kiddush, but he said something beautiful. But he said that um, the parashiot of the tefillin are housed in a box. What's the box called? A bite. Ah. There's a lot to work with there now, right? There's a lot to work with there now. So, um, you know, that was his comment. I'll, I'll look it up again for next week's year to see if it was his or somebody else's, but I think uh, it's very insightful. Okay, so if there are any questions or you want sources, um, I will gladly send them, put them on the group. And 
you can email me or WhatsApp me any questions um, that you may have. All right, everybody, nice to see you all. And um, yes, have a great Shavuot. We'll see you Shabbos. Please go beforehand. Okay, Zagazan. Thank you. Cheers, everyone. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you. Pleasure.